All righty. If you have a Bible, you can open it to James chapter 5. If you do not, that's okay. You can pull out your sermon insert. It's uh, a loose leaf inside your worship booklet. I should say James, Wisdom for Dissidents on the front. And we are looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 this morning. We are almost done with James. Roger finishes it next week. Um, It has been a journey for me. I've enjoyed the sermons I've preached from this, and I hope you've been encouraged as well. But today, kind of like the theme that we've been hitting, wisdom for dissidents, how we are the redfish here. We're not going just along with everybody else, how the world's traveling, how the world thinks, how the world behaves. We are dissidents. And one of the ways in which we're going to be further challenged by James in his letter, in, in a way we are dissidents, is actually with the way we behave in suffering. How are we to act when things aren't going our way? When life has you down, when you are struggling, what are we to do? James gives us the answers. And so with that, as is our custom here, would you stand for the reading of God's word from James 5? I'm just going to read verses 7 through 12. You follow along. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, Or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I revisited a a book this week that encouraged me when I first read it many years ago. It's a small little book called Five English Reformers by... J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle is a 19th century Anglican bishop, and in this little book, Ryle paints brief biographical sketches of five, no surprise, English reformers. Um, He tells the story, and you might have heard some of these names, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Hugh Latimer, John Bradford, and Nicholas Radley. Uh, Ridley, sorry. Uh, And so just to give you a little a taste of what this book might be about, each of the chapters is one of those man's names and then subtitled Martyr or Bishop and Martyr. These men and others were brutally killed, usually uh, while being, after being imprisoned and starved and sometimes beaten, they were burned at the stake by the famously named Bloody Mary the Roman Catholic Queen of England during the mid-1500s, Mary burned an estimated 300 Protestants, non-Catholics. 
burn them at the stake, including these five characters, Hooper, Taylor, Latimer, Radford, Bradford, and Ridley. Ryle says of these martyrs, quote, never, I believe, since Christ left the world, did Christian men ever meet a cruel death with such glorious faith and hope and patience as these Marian martyrs. For our purpose this morning, actually, I I love reading about those five men. I'm not actually as interested in those five for our purpose this morning as I am another character mentioned in the very beginning of the book. He doesn't get an entire chapter, but he's mentioned in detail in Ryle's introduction. And that is a man named John Rogers. John Rogers was the very first man, pastor, Protestant to be persecuted under Bloody Mary's reign. Roger was a, Rogers was a London minister, so remember in mid-1500s, if you're in London and you're preaching, you better be Catholic. Rogers is a Protestant. He served as vicar of St. Sepulchre, and uh, Ryle comments that this man, John Rogers, more than any of them, did more for the cause of Protestantism than all of his fellow sufferers combined. You may have heard of this man, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, got the Bible into the English language. John Rogers was his assistant to get that work done. John Rogers helped translate most of the English Bible alongside William Tyndale. John Rogers was a faithful pastor of a church and an ardent preacher of God's word. But John Rogers is arrested. Translating the Bible into English is a no-no. He's arrested for preaching the Bible. He's arrested for translating it into English. He's examined by Bishop Gardner, which is just a a wicked pawn of, of Queen Bloody Mary, and he's imprisoned. He spends quite a bit of time in prison, unable to see his wife or 10 children, including a newborn baby that he was not allowed to meet. What makes men and women able to endure hardship like that? Ryle mentioned three things that these Marian martyrs displayed in their suffering. Remember he said with such glorious, what do you say, faith? Hope and patience. What an odd description of those suffering to be marked by patience. And even if it isn't facing martyrdom, how can we withstand in hardship? How do we make it through the valleys of life? Whether it's martyrdom or whether it's just seasons of desolation and depression, darkness, anxiety, the diagnosis The pain, the prodigal child, the prodigal parent, the prodigal sibling. James is writing to a suffering church. He's writing to persecuted brothers and sisters of ours who are persecuted by the wealthy elites. They're persecuted and driven from their jobs, driven from their homes, driven from their loved ones, driven out of their place. All because they were identifying with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ. And what James gives them and and clearly gives us by connection is a way to stand in trial, a way to live in this life as exiles, which we are, waiting our real home, which is yet to come. James gives us a way to endure, 
a way to persevere in hardship. But it's not the answer you probably expect. What does life look like when you're struggling? What ought mark your life in hardship? James's answer, patience. Patience. I have one point for us this morning. It's my main argument because I think this is James' main argument, especially in verses 7 through 11, and that is this. An active expectation of the Lord's future return fuels patience in present suffering. The fact that that day is coming and that is going to happen, the Lord's return, if rightly waiting an expectation for that ought to fuel our lives in the present, no matter what suffering uh, might look like in our lives. It fuels patience now. And so our time together this morning is really just exploring that truth. We're going to, to be digging deep into what patience looks like for us. But before we do that, I do want to start actually at the end. I want to make a comment on verse 12, which kind of feels like at first reading like a skin tag on this whole kind of thing on patience. Like what do we do with verse 12? Just tagged on to the end here. It says, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, at first glance, this is out of place. This is just kind of a wisdom thing thrown in there. But I think James is doing something interesting. If you pay attention closely, he's going back and forth between a command to be patient for the Lord's coming. And then he says something about the way we speak. And then he goes back to um, endure hardship, be patient, and then make the comment on our speech. Be patient, watch your mouth. Be patient and endure, watch your mouth. Verse 7 starts with be patient. And then in verse 9, don't grumble against one another. Verse 11, be patient and endure. Be steadfast like Job. Verse 12, don't swear. Now, what does this mean, though? Although he's got some, that, that's literally what's going on, what does this mean for us? I don't think James is saying that absolutely any and all oaths are wicked. Like you couldn't even swear in like a civil court or something to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, or, or something like that. I don't think James is outlawing all oaths. One, this sounds very similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But another reason why I don't think that's what's going on is the Bible has oaths. So there's two main interpretations that kind of come to the forefront on what this verse means and how we are to live. The first, less popular, though possible, is that James is going at, remember those groups that we called zealots? Those zealot groups that James is, is well aware of that were tempted to revolt against Roman oppression, Fight back against those who have driven you out of your home. James has a lot to say about fighting back and anger and outrage and murder and killing. Don't do them. He, he could be speaking to those groups. Why I think that's a possibility at least is because all of those zealot groups required an oath, required an allegiance, a pact to join them. And then you could be in the undercover fighting back covert group. Possible? Uh, the, the majority interpretation, I think, where I'm landing on this is actually he's, he's, he's telling you to watch your mouth in your suffering. Don't swear. I think 
Because in suffering and in pain and in trial, we might be tempted to unreal and rash vows. Anything to alleviate the pressure. Anything to to change my circumstances. We might be tempted to say things that we ought not. To over-exaggerate things, whether to God or others, in a hope to... uh, alleviate our circumstances. James is saying, be careful. It's especially in suffering that we're going to be uniquely tempted to say things we ought. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But let's walk our way through verse 7, verses 7 through 11. We're going to spend most of our time in 7 and 8 because I think they're, they're really impactful and, and can really be helpful for us and see how an active expectation of the Lord's future return can fuel our patience in the present. Look at verse 7 again. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. The word patient there, as defined by a leading uh, Greek dictionary, says that the word patient means to remain tranquil while awaiting an outcome. To remain tranquil while awaiting an outcome. Synonyms of tranquil include calm, quiet, rest, composed. Biblically speaking, the idea of patience is a state of remaining tranquil, calm, quiet, composed, restful, while awaiting an outcome. And the outcome is given to us in verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. That's the duration of our patience. How long do we need to be patient? Until then. And there's the outcome of the waiting patiently, whenever the Lord comes back. Until the coming of the Lord. Doug Moo comments on that, that phrase, coming of the Lord, in his commentary on James. He says, quote, This phrase became a technical term in the early church for the expected return of Jesus in glory to judge the wicked and to deliver the saints. So James is saying, be patient, composed, and tranquil in the midst of your suffering and hardship until the coming of the Lord when he will return and make all things right the day in which those banners behind us come true, when death shall be no more and there shall be no more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Until that day, what is our lives, what, what should our lives be marked by? Patience, calm, composed. God is calling his people in the midst of the suffering and trial that James's original readers were experiencing in the midst of our suffering and trials, to wait patiently until the coming of Jesus, which is yet future to us. The point being, friends, Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. There is no injustice that you see, hear about, even think is a possible injustice that will not be righted by the Lord Jesus. All of your suffering is not in vain, And all will be restored and made up in full. That means right now, calm, trust, patience. 
James even gives us an illustration for this. Look at verse 7 again. It continues on. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, confession, I am a lot of things, and I enjoy a number of hobbies. I, I, I like to think that I'm pretty well read. One thing I am not experienced in is farming. I actually thought myself too cool for FFA in school. And so here I'm relying on other people to tell me what's going on here. Now, I do think the meaning is pretty clear, which we'll get to in a moment. And I think it could be rather liberating for us. But what James is getting at here is that the farmer plants the seed and he waits patiently. Specifically, he waits for what the text says, early and late rains. That is... In Palestine, the early rain would fall around late autumn, so think October-ish. And the late rain would come in the early spring, March and April. These rains, especially in the Middle East, were vital to the seed that the farmer planted, becoming actual vegetation and actual food and grain for his family and for his town. But what does the farmer do to produce the rain? Nothing. Now, in, in our modern, um, technologically advanced day and age, if, if I ask that question, what happens if it's a dry season? You might say, well, we just make the rain. We have machines, we have tractors that can water the fields if the rain does not come. That is not the case with Palestinian farmers. No rain, no food. No rain, suffering. No rain, Anxiety. Farmers did the work of planting, and friends, they waited. I hope the rain comes. They hoped and they prayed, and friends, James is saying that is how Christians ought to be in the midst of suffering while we wait until the Lord's triumphant return. James is saying that those in trial, those in suffering, those in persecution, those struggling, what do you do? Here's the answer. You live ordinary life and you calm down. Quiet, restful, composed patience. You wait like the farmer does for his crop or, or like the farmer does for the rain to then make the crop come. In the same way, we wait patiently for Jesus to come and make all things right. And it's here, James is returning to how he opened his letter. You have to think weeks back when, when Roger started preaching James chapter one. Do you remember how James opens? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, a synonym of patience. And he's, what he's going to say in verses 10 and 11. And let that steadfastness, James continues, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, James goes on to argue there, what does that patience, that steadfastness in trials look like? He says at the end of, of chapter one, it looks like not being quick to speak, quick to anger, 
Roger showed us that anger and outrage do not accomplish the righteousness of God. What does steadfastness look like? Slowness to speak. Very slow to get angry. And you listen. We could say, to use the words of James 5, patience. Critical posts, angry tweets, messages, upset email, white-knuckled grip trying to change the outcome of everything you can control, control, control is not the way. We don't bring the rain like the farmer. We wait. So here's why I think this could be liberating. James calls us to patience in suffering by living ordinary life and by loving Jesus in all ways, in all facets of that ordinary life. We get up, even if our bodies are cracking and and breaking and you hurt yourself in the middle of the night somehow sleeping, you get up, you pray. You love your neighbor that day, you pray. You work jobs in the home or outside the home for God's glory, you pray. We disciple kids, we love spouses, we care for our neighbor, we enjoy Christian fellowship, we arrive and and enjoy active worship as God's people, we eat, we sleep, we trust, we pray. That's what life looks like. We don't yell, we don't create outrage, we don't try to overthrow, we don't grumble, we don't complain, we don't bicker, we don't argue, we don't cause division. It's literally what he tells us in verse 9, getting ahead of myself. Now, I do want to say I'm very aware of sufferers in the New City community. And this is not to take away from your pain, this is not to take away from your suffering. Some in our church community are really struggling. Loss and pain is real. And it will be for many of us throughout our lives. I want you to remember, lament is a real category as well. But James 5, 7 through 11 is primarily about patience. That's why I'm hitting this so hard. It's not actually a discourse on suffering itself. When these people, when the original readers are suffering... When they're enduring hardship, what does life look like? It looks like steadfastness. Suffering's the context, but the call and the aim of James 5, 7 through 11 is a call to patience. Now, here I have another confession, not just I know nothing about farming, but here is another confession that I am guilty of. I diminish patience. What I mean by that is I diminish the sin of patience by thinking of it as like the most common sin of all. Therefore, everybody's impatient. I don't know if you're that way as as well. You you could be, maybe not. I see it a lot in, in my leading of community groups. There's a desire in my own heart and in our leaders' hearts to get deeper, right? I want to get to the heart. I, I don't. No, I don't want to hear about prayer requests for your, your kitten or your uncle's friend's sister's mom, second removed. I want, what are you confessing? What are you struggling with? And the one that I get frustrated by is like, I was really impatient this week at work. I want to say, 
No, duh, we all are. Let's get to something else. You can't use patience as your confession. I've said that before. I'm, I'm, this is a confession time for me, too. All right? I'm not proud of this. I have been really challenged by James this week in this area. Because I think what he's saying here, and I'll say more in a second, patience is actually the very heart of discipleship. Lack of patience, not growing in discipleship. What I do want, and this is going back to my small group thing, if you're going to confess patience, I wish we'd actually nailed in more on that then. If it's true that you're being impatient with your kids or coworkers or spouse, let's lean into that because I think it's the center of godliness. This has been a revelation this past week, I think. 21 times in the New Testament alone. A command that the spirit in you causes growth in patience. Or to use the words of another commentator, Alec Mateer. Faith meets life's tests and through patience, not without it, grows into full maturity of settled character. Hear this. James's doctrine of the Christian life is a doctrine of process or growth and patience is its central requirement. I'm in the audience right now as I'm saying this, right? Ask yourself, have you seen growth in patience? Because if Mateer is right, I think he is getting at what James is getting at. Patience is the central requirement of growth and godliness. Brothers and sisters, whether you're just coming out of a trial, coming out of suffering, or whether you're in the midst of one right now, or maybe you're about to go into one, the posture of our hearts and lives ought to be patience, calm, tranquility, restfulness, composure. And we are to display that patience, again, with ups and downs, struggles. But over the course of time, a slow upward progress in the direction of growth in patience. How long until the outcome? And the outcome for us is the return of our Lord and friend, Jesus. And when he comes, we'll wipe away all tears, crush all pain and disease, and make all of your suffering and your persecution and your pain and your trials worth it. But before we tend to think that patience, again, I had this idea for some reason, like the farmer planting his seeds, that he plants the seeds and then like sits in a rocker on his front chair, like until the stuff happens. Before you begin to think that the patience James is calling us to is like an inactive, sit back and be passive kind of patience, he gives us verse 8. You also be patient. He repeats the command, and look at this. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, or the coming of the Lord is near. We're to live as if it is right around the corner. Tomorrow, end of the week, it would change the way we we live our lives probably, but I want you to, to focus on the establish your hearts phrase. That verb there has the idea of strengthening your heart, working out your heart, making your heart firm. 
I love this because it's used once in the life of Jesus. I won't nerd out too much, but if you remember back when we preached Luke, right in the middle of Luke, there's a, there's a very pivotal point in the gospel. I, I'd almost give you $100 if you remembered what verse that is, but I, Luke 9, 50, yeah, not you. <laughs> Luke 9, 51. It's this change in the book. Luke 9, 51. Luke uses the same word. Listen to the verse. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You remember the verse now? We made a big deal of it. The, the, the Jesus setting his face is the same verb used here. Jesus was determined, he was resolved, persistent to get to Jerusalem to die for his people as our sin substitute, to rise again from the grave in resurrection. In the same strength of language, James is telling us that we wait and we endure and we persevere by being established in our hearts. We're to train our hearts through the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary habits of the spiritual life, worship being the biggest one. And then whatever your week looks like with Jesus, Bible and prayer and ordinary life, reading and memorizing and praying. And make no mistake, that's something we put effort into. We work at this. We, we establish our hearts we, we do participate in this. We cultivate faith. We could say, to put it negatively here, that James is warning us to establish our hearts. That phrase is a warning against inconsistency, a lack of firmness, a spottiness of strengthening your heart. Friends, we should be focused upon, determined Committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning in heaven, and coming again. And that gospel story should drive and influence everything we do and everything we say and everything we think. I think James targets the heart because our hearts are tricky, aren't they? I was about to point at Jason's guitar, it's gone. Our hearts are very similar to the guitars we played this morning like those strings on my instrument. Life can batter that instrument right there, especially with four children, eight and under. Whether it is just playing a lot, whether it's children turning the knobs, whether it's the battering of life, or maybe even a decent amount of time goes by where I don't pay attention to the strings. It goes out of tune. Sounded good this morning, but it can sound terrible if it's out of tune. Your heart, brother or sister in Christ, is exactly the same. Whether it's the battering of life, whether it's the trial and suffering you're in, whether it's children turning your knobs, or whether it's just time that goes by and you have not tended to your heart, you go out of tune. We have to see Jesus. We have to establish our hearts. And I said this one's the most important one, but I don't know about you. You'll, we, it's still very possible to see Jesus this morning and run low on fuel and fumes the rest of the week. You're meant to see Jesus and fight to see Christ. 
regularly. Let's move on to verse 9 here. This is where he now switches gears and talks about the way we speak. Uh, Do not grumble. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, sisters, so that you may not be judged. Again, as I mentioned with my opening comments on verse 12, the other speech verse, I think the main temptation of our hearts when the pressures of suffering press against us is to what? Grumble. The word grumble there is to complain. To groan. And whether this grumbling is to other Christians or about other Christians, it ought not be. And remember, these people that James is writing to had reason to grumble. Just like many of you, some of you really have earthly, realistic reasons for grumbling, complaining. James stands firm. Do not grumble. Why? The Lord is coming back. He will make it up to you. Your seeing Jesus will do away with all and whatever suffering you experienced. It will be worth it. James gives us two examples of patience in suffering. We're not going to spend much time on them. Uh, I should say that I think that judgment language of verse 9 is simply saying, do not grumble. Watch your mouth because in your grumbling and complaining, you're becoming just like the ones who've been hurting you. You're becoming just like the oppressor. The two examples held out for us are the prophets and Job. In verses 10 and 11, here's examples of steadfastness. Here's examples of patience in their suffering. You could spend a decent amount of time studying the prophets. Just pick one. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, suffering. And all of them are marked by calm patience in the midst. I didn't say that their eyes were dry. I didn't say it wasn't hard. Patience in suffering. Talk about Job steadfastness. It's here, uh, as, I, as I start to lay in this plane, friends, that I want to remind you of something I've said many a time here, and that is, other than the scriptures themselves, I'm not sure of anything that has bolstered and encouraged my own faith in my walk with Jesus than Christian biographies, than reading about saints throughout uh, history. And I just want to, to highlight the one that I opened with. If you want to think more about Men and women who have remained steadfast in trial. J.C. Ryle's five English reformers would be an easy one to start with. It's very brief. Um, John Piper has an entire series called The Swans Are Not Silent. I didn't check, but it might even be free on Desiring God. Don't hold me to that. But the, here's three of them. There's a lot more. And you can buy them in one, like one volume now that's huge. They're just like three or four Christian characters highlighted in biography. Very brief. This one's William Tyndale, John Patton, and Adoniram Judson. Augustine Luther, Calvin. Spurgeon, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor. And it has done wonders for my soul, reading these and seeing their steadfastness, their patience in trial. Uh, Last year I reached out, uh, or last year I read uh, Susanna Wesley's biography, The Mother of of John and Charles Wesley by Arnold Dallimore. Talk about a sufferer. Talk about steadfastness in trial. I, I reached out to a couple of New Cities women this past week asking for their recommendations on godly women 
who they have read in biography, uh, and they've displayed steadfastness in trial. Here's a couple of their recommendations. A Chance to Die by Elizabeth Elliot. The God I Love by Johnny Erickson Tata. Really anything by Erickson Tata. Lastly, 12 Faithful Women. Portraits of Steadfast Endurance. It's a volume edited by Melissa Kruger. I would just hold those out to you. Friends, we've seen that it's an active expectation, not a passive one, an active expectation of the Lord's return that is yet future that fuels our suffering now, that gives us patience to endure now. And this makes sense not just because of what's coming in Jesus, but as we look back to what he did on the cross for us. Jesus has given us everything. Forgiveness of our sin, adoption, his life in our place, his resurrection for us, new birth, and he promises us everything. Eternity, where we will receive everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. And all of this is bound together because we get Jesus. We're united to him. Oh, what a future we have, friends. With that truth, we can face tomorrow. With that, we can punch our anxiety. With that, we can trust. With that, we can grow in patience. We can endure because Jesus gave us everything and he's coming back. It's actually something that that John Rogers grasped really well. I never ended our story of John Rogers. He wasn't only imprisoned. He didn't just suffer darkness And hunger, he wasn't just separated from his wife and ten children. He was, in fact, brutally murdered and burned at the stake. He was the first. So I conclude where we start off with where we started off with a quote from J.C. Ryle. It's a paragraph detailing for us the end of John Rogers' life. On the morning of his martyrdom, John Rogers was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate. He was hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church where he had preached. And through the streets, um, he was walked through the streets of the parish where he had done his work as pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby whom Bishop Bonner in his diabolical cruelty, (laughs) I love how he threw that in, had flatly refused him leave to see. He saw them, hardly allowed to stop, and then he walked calmly, calmly to the stake. Repeating from memory, the 51st Psalm. Crap, I can't see. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that clergy and church leaders would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, 
The enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with applauds, uh, thunders of applause. Even Noailet, the French ambassador, wrote home a description of the scene. And he said, Rogers went to death as if he was walking to his wedding. Then Ralph says he died with comparative ease. And so the first Marian martyr passed away. What's interesting to me is that those who knew John Rogers knew the reason for his patience while he was in prison, knew the reason why he could walk to the stake as if he was walking to his wedding, and his answer repeatedly was, I get to see Jesus. Whether by second coming or by death, it was the expectation of seeing the Lord Jesus and being with Jesus that fueled his present suffering. May it do the same to us like James wishes. Let me pray for us as we prepare to go to the table. Lord, help us grow in patience. Help us be patient until your coming. Work in us, Holy Spirit, I pray, for the goodness of your kingdom, for your glory and fame that my friends, my brothers and sisters here at New City would be marked by patience, myself included. Help us. And help us bring our impatience, help us bring our suffering and our trial to you now as we commune with you at the table. In Jesus' name.